Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir Johnny MacDonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. On the topic of donations, I would like to say thank you to Thomas Jacoby and Russell Wood, both of whom gave donations to the podcast this past week. I would also like to say thank you to Mike Ryan and Jim Sinead, both of whom left five-star reviews of the podcast. Those reviews are incredibly important to keeping the podcast near the top of the charts and helping more people learn about the really interesting Prime Ministers of Canada. Of course, don't forget I also have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and Canadian History X, available on all podcast platforms. And remember, that's E-H-X. Today, we're looking at my second favorite Prime Minister after Lester B. Pearson, a man who actually had a huge impact on Canada. We're going to talk about Louis Saint Laurent. By 1948, Canada was 81 years old, and in all of that time, it had only one Francophone Prime Minister, Sir Wilfrid Laurier. That would finally change upon the retirement of William Lyon Mackenzie King, who chose Louis Saint Laurent to succeed him in the top post in the country. So today I'm looking at Louis Saint Laurent, a man often forgotten amid Prime Ministers of the last half of the 20th century, but who had an immense impact on Canada, its infrastructures, and its institutions. So let's begin with our look at Uncle Louis. The Saint Laurent family dates back to the early days of New France, with Nicolas Saint Laurent arriving in 1660, settling in the area of Quebec City and eventually moving west along the St. Lawrence River. Nicholas would serve as a sheriff in Quebec, but most of his descendants were farmers who did not attend school. It was not until Jean-Baptiste Saint-Laurent, over 150 years after Nicholas, that the first member of the Saint-Laurent family attended school. Jean would marry a woman named Marianne, and that couple's first child would go on to become the leader of the country. Saint Laurent was born on February 1, 1882 in Compton, Quebec. While his father was French-Canadian, his mother was Irish-Canadian, giving the family a unique balance that would influence Saint Laurent heavily in his life. Growing up bilingual, his gestures tended to be French while his English had a slight Irish accent. He would speak French to his father and English to his mother, a practice he thought was common in families and something that would influence him in his desire for national unity as a Prime Minister. Growing up, his father was a strong supporter of the Liberal Party, even when the riding he lived in was dominated by the Conservatives. Jean-Baptiste would run in a provincial by-election in 1894 to no success, but in 1896 when the Liberals and Laurier came to power, Saint Laurent would relay the election returns from the telephone in his father's store for the many waiting to hear the results. Despite having a passion for politics he inherited from his father, Saint Laurent was never drawn to the profession, preferring to focus on his law career. But during a campaign tour of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Saint Laurent would meet him and shake hands with him, something he would relate later in life. Saint Laurent would earn a Bachelor of Arts in 1902 from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, and then attended Laval University, where he earned his law degree. While he was offered a Rhodes Scholarship after graduating from Laval in 1905, he declined it. 
While his parents hoped that he would become a priest, Saint Laurent was drawn to the law. In the process of earning his degree, he finished at the top of his class and won the Governor General's Medal. In 1908, he married Jeanne Renal, and together, the couple would have two sons and three daughters. From 1905 to 1941, Saint Laurent worked as a lawyer and then became a law professor at Laval University in 1914. By this point, he was making $10,000 a year, allowing for a comfortable life for himself and his family. By 1917, the family had grown to five children and they lived in a 15-room house in Quebec City, complete with an automobile and servants. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, he worked as a corporation lawyer and was the head of the Quebec Bar and the president of the Canadian Bar Association from 1930 to 1932. During this time, Saint Laurent was one of the country's most respected councils. An example of the respect he commanded came in 1926 when Prime Minister Arthur Meehan offered him a seat on the Supreme Court of Canada, which he declined, and then a post in the cabinet, which he also declined. A contemporary in law, Warwick Chipman, would say that Saint Laurent was, quote, solid, sound, pleasing to his courts and established an intimacy with them. He had a human touch despite his technical detail and toughness, end quote. One reason for his success was the fact that he was bilingual, which allowed Saint Laurent to represent French clients in Ottawa, the United States, and Britain. Saint Laurent would often speak in English Canada, but rarely took part in politics beyond appearing on a platform in support of Charles Power in 1926. During the First World War, Saint Laurent was part of a movement to reconcile the diverging views of French and English Canadians, and he would often speak on national unity. By the mid-1930s, Saint Laurent began to expand his horizons by helping out the Liberals as a council on federal matters. In 1936, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King submitted legislation regarding minimum wage and hours of labour to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. At the time, it was felt that such matters were a provincial responsibility, while the federal government wanted control over it. Saint Laurent was hired as a government council in the matter. In 1937, King appointed Saint Laurent as a Royal Commission Council on Dominion Provincial Relations. This would have a huge impact on Saint Laurent, who was not acquainted with Western Canada. Magazine stories at the time stated that Western wheat farmers took winter vacations in California and that they had unlimited revenue. What Saint Laurent found was that the West was dealing with misery amid the Great Depression and the provincial governments had no means to support their people. The entire matter increased the desire of Saint Laurent for national unity, and he would speak to a French-speaking audience in Winnipeg in 1938, stating, quote, It seems likely that our constitution will have to be amended if confederation is to survive. End quote. The commission would recommend constitutional adjustments in 1940, giving the federal government more power in the field of social security. Then, Prime Minister King called Saint Laurent on December 4, 1941, and asked him to be in Ottawa the next day. Over lunch, King asked him to take over as Minister of Justice and the MP for Quebec East. At the time, King knew that Saint Laurent was making $50,000 a year, or $850,000 today, so he appealed to his sense of duty to the country. At the time, Saint Laurent was 59 and had no political experience. Despite some of the work with the government, Saint Laurent barely knew King, and King only knew Saint Laurent as, quote, a distant and rather chilly lawyer, 
End quote. Despite this, he felt a duty to serve and took the post. Ernest Lapointe, a top advisor from Quebec for the king, had died in November of that year, and with the conscription issue coming up, King wanted someone highly respected and strong enough to deal with it in Quebec. King did not want the same conscription crisis that was seen in 1917, and the divisions it created in Parliament in Canada. On December 10th, Saint Laurent was sworn in as the Minister of Justice. While Saint Laurent agreed, he did so on the condition that after the war, he would return to his law practice. Little did he know, he would spend the next decade and a half in politics. On February 9, 1942, Saint Laurent was elected in Quebec East, taking 56.7% of the vote, winning the riding that had once been occupied by Sir Wilfrid Laurier. Unlike many liberal ministers from Quebec, he did not oppose conscription during the Second World War, and he supported King in 1944 when it was imposed for overseas service. This increased his profile for King, and it would have long-lasting consequences for the political career of Saint Laurent. Saint Laurent also helped King due to the respect he commanded in Quebec, which prevented several Quebec Liberal MPs from leaving the party. When King went to London in the spring of 1944, Saint Laurent was made the acting Minister of External Affairs until King's return. In May of 1945, he participated with King in the founding conference of the United Nations and also took part in the conference that led to the creation of the International Monetary Fund. So, the first weeks in the life of the Assembly of the United Nations are bound to be of special significance. We have to pass from the abstract ideal of a world organization to ensure peace to its concrete realization. We have the instrument created at San Francisco, and we know that the 51 nations who signed it there have now ratified it in the most formal manner in which international undertakings can be made. We must now demonstrate to the millions of common men and women throughout the world whose eyes are upon us at this time that this instrument will be strong enough and supple enough for the formidable tasks which appear to await us that it will be capable of defeating those eternal enemies of any advance in human affairs, fear, suspicion, mistrust, cynicism, despondency, selfish greed, and overweening ambition. It is true that all member states have pledged themselves in this most solemn manner to fulfill in good faith the obligations assumed by them under the Charter that they are to refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. It is true I have undertaken to ensure that states which are not members of the United Nations shall act in accordance with the same principles so far as may be necessary for the maintenance of international peace and security. In the 1945 election, which the Liberals won with a smaller majority than before, many were surprised that Saint Laurent ran given his original statement that he would not be in politics after the war. Nonetheless, he ran and picked up 59.8% of the vote in his riding and 17,000 more votes than his second-place opponent. 
While the Liberals lost 59 seats to finish with 118 seats, and the Progressive Conservatives gained 27 seats, King knew that his time in power was coming to an end. In addition, he was 70, and he was soon looking for a successor. King began to give Saint Laurent more important assignments as well, including representing Canada at international conferences and at the United Nations, while also promoting Canadian membership in the new NATO. By this time, King considered Saint Laurent to be his most trusted minister. As a representative for Canada at the founding of the United Nations, Saint Laurent felt that the UN would be ineffective at times in war, and that it would need to impose its will. As a result, he advocated for the adoption of a UN military force. He wanted a force that would deal with violent situations, but also preserve peace and prevent combat. A decade later, this idea would be put into reality by Saint Laurent and his Secretary of State for External Affairs, Lester B. Pearson, in preventing the Suez Crisis from escalating into nuclear war. Canada's diplomatic staff quickly found that Saint Laurent was the opposite of King in the role of external affairs. While King was fussy at times, Saint Laurent was courteous and easy to brief, and relied on his staff to bring him clear recommendations that he would consider on the spot. He also attended his office on a regular basis. As Scott Meredith Reed, a senior diplomat in the department, would say, quote, I knew that there was a man who deserved loyalty because he was loyal. End quote. At the Liberal Convention on August 7, 1948, the first held since 1919, Saint Laurent was nominated to be leader among three others, including Paul Martin Sr., father of future Prime Minister Paul Martin. The convention would ratify the decision on November 15, 1948, making Saint Laurent the 12th Prime Minister in Canadian history. He would also be the first married Prime Minister since Arthur Meehan in 1926, since both R.B. Bennett and William Lyon Mackenzie King never married. He was also the second French-Canadian Prime Minister after Sir Wilfrid Laurier four decades previous. A reception was held in his honour to celebrate his election as the new leader of the party, but he would forget about it and instead took his wife out for dinner. Saint Laurent quickly set himself apart by not having the RCMP guarding him or anyone waiting on him in the House of Commons. On the night he was sworn in as Prime Minister, he left the East Block at 7.30pm and he asked the elevator operator why he stayed so late. The elevator operator said that he had orders to stay until the Prime Minister left. Saint Laurent stated, quote, After this, go home at the same time as the others. I can walk downstairs. End quote. With the RCMP, Saint Laurent noticed a man trailing him and he called Commissioner S.T. Wood asking why his orders had been disobeyed. The RCMP said they had no one following him. But when Saint Laurent stated that someone was following him, the RCMP discovered that it was an American reporter looking to get material for an article. In his new role, Saint Laurent differed from King in that he gave each minister their own individual responsibility and he did not intrude unless a subject required a higher political direction. He also hated foreign travel and typically assigned travel outside the country to Paul Martin Sr. or Lester B. Pearson. As 1949 dawned for Saint Laurent, he would get down to work on a number of tasks, while also preparing for his first election and the first election for the Liberals without William Lyon Mackenzie King at the helm of the party. 
Prior to the election, he would help negotiate the entry of Newfoundland into Confederation on March 31, 1949, the last change to the Canadian political map until 1999, and the first new province since 1905, which came during the time of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. Ladies and gentlemen, for two months, the official delegation from Newfoundland has been working out with representatives of the Government of Canada precise terms for the entry of Newfoundland into Confederation. I am sure all of us are agreed that our labors have been characterized by a spirit of mutual understanding and goodwill. The representatives of the Government of Canada have endeavored to appreciate the position and views of the delegation from Newfoundland to be responsive, responsive to requests for information and generally to facilitate uh, the negotiations. Uh, I hope we have succeeded. I know I am speaking for all the Canadians who have participated in our discussions when I express warm appreciation of the broad outlook and cooperative attitude of the Newfoundland delegation. I feel that I shall be speaking for the Newfoundland delegation as well as for my colleagues when I express our thanks for the hard work and efficient service of the officials and clerical staffs on both sides who have been associated with these arduous and complicated negotiations. All of us in this room know it has not been a simple task to arrive at the exact terms of union. At this moment, it may be appropriate to recall what had been accomplished before our labors began on October 6th last. Time and study were required to determine whether there was a fair and equitable basis for the entry of Newfoundland into Confederation. The delegation from the National Convention of Newfoundland spent four months here in Ottawa in 1947, exploring this question with a committee of the Canadian government. <coughs> Following that study, uh, Mr. Mackenzie King communicated to the governor of Newfoundland the general terms the Canadian government would be prepared to recommend to Parliament as a basis of union. Then uh, the people of Newfoundland were given in a democratic manner an opportunity to decide whether on that basis uh, they wished Newfoundland to unite federally with Canada. When the people of Newfoundland, by a majority in a referendum on July 22nd, 1948, had expressed their desire to enter into Confederation, uh, Mr. King announced that the Government of Canada would be glad to receive the authorized representatives of Newfoundland to work out the precise terms of an agreement for union. With that out of the way, he got down to work on becoming an elected Prime Minister. When we look at Canadian history, Prime Ministers who succeeded a long-standing Prime Minister tend to have a short career. It was seen with Sir John Abbott succeeding Sir John A. Macdonald, when Arthur Meehan succeeded Sir Robert Borden, and it was seen when John Turner succeeded Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Kim Campbell succeeding Brian Mulroney, and Paul Martin succeeding Jean Chrétien. Saint Laurent actually stands out in this regard because he not only won the election, but he won it big. Now, when you come to decide which party should be entrusted with the responsibility of governing our country, you will want to know what is the record of achievement of each party. 
and how many men of ability it contains. You will also want to know what its policies are and whether they are the best for the people as a whole. When it comes to policy, in most of the constituencies in Canada, the people will have three choices in the forthcoming elections. One of these choices is socialism. I do not believe that many Canadians really want socialism. Not even those I have described as liberals in a hurry. Another choice might be old-fashioned Toryism under a new label. I do not believe that many Canadians really want a return to reactionary Toryism, whatever name it may bear for the moment. I believe the attitude and the policies of the Liberal Party correspond pretty closely with the desires of most Canadians, even of large numbers who do not call themselves Liberals. And I address these words particularly to the million young Canadians who are entitled to vote for the first time. Let me remind you there is a lot more to being really progressive than putting the word progressive in front of the name of a political party. The election, held on June 27, 1949, was the first with Newfoundland in Confederation and the first since 1908 with the Northwest Territories gaining representation. In that election, St. Laurent would win 191 seats in the House, an increase of 73 seats from the 1945 election. At the time, it was the largest majority in Canadian history, and today remains the third largest majority. It is also the largest majority in the history of the Liberal Party. The Progressive Conservatives would lose 24 seats, finishing with only 41. Prior to that election, many worried if St. Laurent would appeal to post-war Canada, but through the first use of media image in Canadian politics, St. Laurent was shown talking with children, giving speeches in shirt sleeves, and having a common touch to appeal to voters. One example of this was seen in an election stop when he got off the train and he went to talk to children on the platform instead of reporters. This gained him the name Uncle Louie, which greatly increased the view of his common touch and broad appeal. With such a large majority, Saint Laurent would be able to make huge changes to the Canadian landscape, and he would. As Prime Minister, Saint Laurent commanded respect from those around him, and he demanded his MPs and ministers work as hard as he did. He also made a point of knowing the portfolios of his ministers, often showing a greater knowledge of those portfolios than the ministers assigned to them. He would often read every cabinet paper and consulted with the clerk of the Privy Council and cabinet secretary before any meeting. Within these meetings, all were given equal consideration for their ideas and thoughts. And while he was easy to talk to, the general rule was to always refer to him as Mr. Saint Laurent or Mr. Prime Minister, but never Louis. For the Canadian public, Saint Laurent was a breath of fresh air and many applauded his kindness for children. In 1954, while standing at a railway station in Ottawa with Prime Minister Yoshida of Japan, a young girl named Jill Winnett began crying because her grandmother was going to England for the winter. Saint Laurent walked away from the Japanese Prime Minister and comforted Jill. Events like this pushed the view of Uncle Louis, the benevolent patriarch who loved children. Of course, it was not always like that with Saint Laurent. At one campaign stop, he yelled at maritime fishermen that he had no intention of using taxpayer money to buy their surplus fish, and in another campaign occasion, 
told Saskatchewan farmers he would not provide federal funds for their irrigation projects unless they could convince him it was of national importance, and they had not convinced him of that. Throughout his first term, St. Laurent stressed national unity, stating that without unity, Canada would be powerless in the world. He would say on August 6, 1948, quote, Our nation was planned as a political partnership of two great races. It was planned by men of vision, of tolerance, as a partnership in which both of the partners would retain their essential characteristics, their religion, their culture. In 1949, he was a leading supporter for the establishment of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and overall, St. Laurent took a harder line to communism than King, disliking it to a much greater degree than his predecessor. That being said, he chose not to outlaw the Communist Party in 1949, as he saw it as too drastic of a measure. One of the biggest projects for St. Laurent during his first term in office was the Trans-Canada Highway Act of 1949, which saw construction of the Trans-Canada Highway begin in 1950 and continue until 1962, creating the longest uninterrupted highway in the world upon its total completion in 1971. One of the biggest challenges for St. Laurent during his first term was the Korean War, which Canada entered in June of 1950 as part of the United Nations Force. This brigade will be known as the Canadian Army Special Force. The Army wants young men physically fit, mentally alert, single or married, and particularly just as many veterans of the Second World War as possible. Canada would send 30,000 troops to Korea, along with warships and other forces. During the war, 500 Canadians would die, while 1,200 would be wounded. Overall, Canada submitted the third most troops to the war, all on a voluntary basis without the use of conscription. The issue of communism was an important one for Saint Laurent, and with the early stages of the Cold War beginning in the 1950s, he would, in addition to sending a force to Korea, push for a permanent garrison in Europe and $5 billion for a rearmament program. The Department of Defense Production was created in 1951 in order to implement this new defense program. As a result of this, the size of Canada's military increased significantly. By the time Saint Laurent left office, Canada's defense expenditures increased by 500%, with the armed forces increasing from 38,000 people to 120,000 people. As Prime Minister, Saint Laurent also got along well with Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower. He would say to an American audience in a speech, quote, there is only one nation with the wealth and the energy and the knowledge and the skill to give real leadership, and that nation is the United States. End quote. On one occasion, an American tourist said they liked Canada and would appreciate shaking the hand of Prime Minister Saint Laurent. Not only did Saint Laurent meet them, but he spent 15 minutes talking to them. Saint Laurent didn't just extend that courtesy to tourists. A young Toronto man just out of university said that he intended to spend his life in Canada and wanted to meet the man who ran the country. Saint Laurent met with him, spending 45 minutes talking about Canada and the promise of its future. Relations with Britain remained close, and Britain no longer tried to put its imperial mandate over the policies of Canada. Saint Laurent was also in favour of Canadian traditionalism when it came to the monarchy. He hosted Princess Elizabeth in the fall of 1951, and he led the Canadian delegation to her coronation as Queen Elizabeth in 1953. Saint Laurent was highly focused on Canadian nationalism, but he also saw the benefit of Canada being part of a commonwealth, 
To that end, he would draft the London Declaration, which would recognize King George VI and later Queen Elizabeth II as the head of the Commonwealth. This was done in an effort to transform the British Commonwealth from a group of white dominions into a multi-racial partnership. With that declaration, India would be able to be part of the organization once it became a republic. Within Canada, Saint Laurent would see a huge expansion of the social programs of the country, including family allowances, old age pensions, the funding of post-secondary education, and the creation of hospital insurance which would lay the groundwork for Tommy Douglas to create a universal healthcare system in Saskatchewan, followed by universal healthcare nationwide by the 1960s. Through the modernization of social policies, the Saint Laurent government would expand old age pensions for all Canadians over the age of 70, while introducing old age assistance for needy Canadians over the age of 65. Allowances for the blind and the disabled was also introduced, as were changes to the National Housing Act, that allowed for the construction of hostels and housing for students, the elderly, disabled, and families of low-income means. In 1951, Saint Laurent moved into 24 Sussex Drive, becoming the first Prime Minister to live in the present official residence of the Prime Minister of Canada. Prior to this, he would walk to work, but was now too far and had to drive. His morning habits stayed the same, though. He would wake up every morning at 7.30am, read the Montreal Gazette, have orange juice, cereal, bacon, one egg with toast, and jam and coffee. He would then be in his office by 9am that day. He would then go home for lunch at 1.15pm and eat macaroni and cheese for lunch. He would be in his office by 2.30pm again, and usually leaving by 6.15pm, and he would continue this pattern from Monday to Saturday each week. If he had to attend a social engagement, as he did once or twice a week, he would arrive always on time drink one drink, smoke one cigarette, and he typically smoked 15 a day, and then he would leave at exactly 30 minutes from when he arrived. In the evenings with his wife, he would always dine around 7pm, and while they did have a television, he only watched hockey games on it. At 11.30pm, every night, he would go to bed to ensure an 8-hour sleep. Due to his upbringing as a bilingual man, he would often speak French to his wife, but he would pray in English. When he talked to his daughter and her husband, he would speak in English. Within the House of Commons, Saint Laurent was often courteous with other members of the government. Margaret Aitken, a Conservative, was elected to the House of Commons in 1953, and she wrote a book about her political campaign called Hey Ma, I Did It. Saint Laurent not only read it, but after she took her place in the House of Commons, he crossed to the Conservative side and congratulated her and said he thought it should be required reading among all political candidates. In 1952, Saint Laurent would advise Queen Elizabeth II to appoint Vincent Massey as the first Canadian-born Governor-General in history. Under Saint Laurent, Canada radically increased its immigration and focused on places other than Northern Europe and the British Isles. His government would also create the Department of Citizenship and Immigration. And while it may seem like Saint Laurent only did good as Prime Minister, that's not always the case. In 1953, his government undertook the High Arctic Relocation Project that moved 92 Inuit from northern Quebec to two communities in the Northwest Territories. This was a forced migration by the government in an effort to use the Inuit as human flagpoles to assert the sovereignty of the government over the far north. As for the Inuit, 
They were not given sufficient support and dealt with extreme poverty, starvation, and the lack of proper necessities for the first years of the move. In 1953, Saint Laurent was elected with another majority government and got down to some very large infrastructure projects. Fellow Canadians, I am greatly pleased by the result of my second general election as national leader of the Liberal Party. I thank you sincerely for the heartening expression of confidence you have given today to the government, your government, of which I have had the privilege to be the head for the past four and a half years. The decisive verdict you have given will strengthen the government in carrying on the policies which have given such satisfaction in Canada during the last few years. We shall continue to strive resolutely for peace and prosperity, and with peace and prosperity for the fundamental aim of the Liberal Party, which is to ensure to all Canadians in every province, of every race and creed and class, and of all political parties, the closest possible approach to equality of opportunity and to a fair share of the bounties with which Providence has endowed our favoured land. I wish to congratulate individually each successful Liberal candidate and thank all our friends who helped them to achieve that success. Those who were unsuccessful this time and their friends will rejoice in the victory of the party and continue to work with the rest of us for the full realization of liberal policies. I should like also to express my appreciation to the thousands of Canadians in hundreds of places, from St. John's, Newfoundland, to Victoria, British Columbia, who have given me such a wonderful reception, not only during the course of my recent election tour, but wherever I have gone since I became Prime Minister of Canada. It will continue to be as it has always been, my highest ambition to contribute something to the strengthening of the spirit of harmony and goodwill and cooperation between English and French-speaking Canadians, which is the one sure foundation of our unity as a nation. With that solid foundation, we have built a nation in which we have been able to welcome hundreds of thousands of good citizens of other races who have all made distinctive contributions to our national life. And now that you have given to my colleagues and to me the vote of confidence for which we appealed, I wish to repeat the promise, which is my only election promise, to give you that best service of which I am capable, and I make with assurance the same promise for the able and devoted colleagues who, with your endorsement, will continue to share with me the responsibility and the high honor of carrying on the government of Canada. Thank you all, and good night. The St. Lawrence Seaway would be opened in 1954, which had a massive impact on Canadian trade for the rest of the century, while construction on the Trans-Canada Pipeline had also began, but it proved to be unpopular and would eventually lead to the eventual downfall of the government, as it met significant opposition in the House of Commons, and it was seen as the beginning of the end for St. Laurent. Trans-Canada Pipelines Limited had been incorporated in 1951 to undertake the construction of a natural gas pipeline across Canada. The Saint Laurent government restricted debate in what was described as a highly aggressive way in order to get the construction of the pipeline put through by June of 1956. The government knew that a delay of a month would postpone the whole project for a year. The Liberals would enact a closure on the debate to limit discussion, which was highly unusual. 
This would create a scandal in Parliament as many felt that there was not enough debate regarding the matter. Known as the Great Pipeline Debate, the bill would be passed and construction would begin in 1956, with 3,500 kilometres of pipeline being installed from 1956 to 1958. While the final weld would be finished on October 10, 1958, and first Alberta gas would enter Toronto on October 27th, the end would soon come for the Saint Laurent government over the project. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. By 1954, Saint Laurent was beginning to tire, especially after a trip around the world that same year, the first for a Canadian Prime Minister. Salon, its ancient temple, in some places give way to modern steel buildings with what can hardly be called modern machines. Salon last week was host to Canada's touring Prime Minister, Louis Saint-Laurent. Much to see in Oriental Salon, its ancient streets and its ancient ways, which must be respected by a visiting state. A few words for an elephant. And his daughter, Madeleine O'Donnell, goes for a ride. Mrs. O'Donnell has won many friends for Canada in the world tour. The famous Buddha Temple near Ceylon's capital of Colombo and a strange welcoming salute. Here the tooth of the Buddha lies enshrined. Prime Minister holds a press conference. He says he's sure there is a real basis for cooperation between Asian and Western people. He also visited Ceylon University and Trinity College, a public school, in his goodwill mission. By plane to Korea, and in Korea he switched to a jeep for a rocky ride to the headquarters of the 25th Brigade. It was here in South Korea that the Prime Minister received world press attention with a statement on Communist China. He said it is only common sense and realistic to say that allied countries eventually will deal with those in active control of public affairs of the people of China. Headquarters of the 25th Brigade, an unveiling ceremony waits for the PM to do the honors. The government of Simon really indicated disapproval of the Prime Minister's inference that eventually Communist China should be recognized. The RCAF plane makes its last stop before heading for home, Japan. The strains of O Canada and Kimigayo mingled as the Canadian leaders stepped down from the big Canadian plane. Mr. Saint Laurent in his visit called for increased trade between Canada and Japan, but inferred there will be some restrictions on Japanese goods coming to Canada. On hand to greet Mr. Saint Laurent was the Japanese Premier Yoshida, a staunch advocate of close cooperation with the West. And so Canada's Prime Minister concludes a historic round-the-world trip. In 1956, the Suez Crisis erupted between Britain, France, Israel, and Egypt. 
and there was a danger that it would escalate into a third world war that could go nuclear. St. Laurent and Lester B. Pearson worked to resolve the crisis through the formation of the United Nations Emergency Force. I will go into more detail about the crisis during my episode on Lester B. Pearson, but while Pearson would be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, St. Laurent deserves as much credit for helping to create the force. St. Laurent's government would introduce equalization payments in 1956, which redistributed tax revenue between provinces to assist poorer provinces in delivering government programs and services. Before the 1957 election, St. Laurent's government would take $100 million in debt taxes and use it to establish the Canada Council, which supports social services, arts, and the humanities to this day. Around this time, the personality of St. Laurent was beginning to change, and he would often sit mute in debates in the House of Commons. At cabinet meetings, instead of his usual role of leading the meeting, he would stare out the window, and meetings drifted often without resolutions. It is likely that in the mid-1950s, St. Laurent was dealing with a form of depression, but it is not known what brought it on, although there are several theories. At the time, his daughter was unwell, the family finances were no longer strong, and there was a real danger that they would be spending beyond their means. The law firm he had built was not prospering, and St. Laurent did not seem to know what to do moving forward. When the 1957 election came along, St. Laurent was appearing old and out of touch at the age of 75. This was the first televised election, which would influence voters heavily. For the most part, St. Laurent did not make an impression over television. Many felt, especially after the 1956 pipeline debate, that the Liberals were becoming arrogant with power, having governed Canada since 1935. Several factions within the party were now looking at removing St. Laurent, and he was also dealing with a dynamic new opponent in John Diefenbaker. In the election held on June 10, 1957, the Liberals did pick up 200,000 more votes than Progressive Conservatives, but most of those came in Quebec, where St. Laurent remained immensely popular. The party would lose 64 seats to fall to 105, while the Progressive Conservatives picked up 61 seats, taking 112, to form the new government. After almost a decade in power, St. Laurent was out as Prime Minister. The Liberals were also out of power, ending the longest uninterrupted run in government for a party at the federal level in Canadian history. As Secretary of State, Jack Pickersgill would state, quote, John Diefenbaker did not win the election of 1957. The Liberal Party lost it. End quote. In the summer after the election, St. Laurent spent his time in his summer home, and Pickersgill would visit and state later, quote, He was obviously deeply depressed, could not be drawn into conversation, and clearly had no interest in his new role. End quote. Lionel Chevier and Lester B. Pearson, at the request of St. Laurent's family, would come to the summer home and persuaded him that he would not be deserting the party if he resigned. A letter of resignation had been drafted by Pearson, and after a while, St. Laurent gave it his consent. He did so on the promise from Pearson that he would run to replace him. For St. Laurent, what had been a temporary career in politics had lasted 17 years, and the Liberal Party had a new leader in Pearson. What are these compensations which uh, a Prime Minister who has to bear the burden of leading his country into difficult decisions, what are the compensations that a Prime Minister uh, does get? Well, of course, uh, I suppose the, the, uh, the principal 
compensation is uh, uh, the the uh, illusion, perhaps, but nevertheless the satisfaction of feeling that uh, he has been useful. Just that, been useful to his country. You get no sense of pride out of having led your country. Well, uh, no. Quite frankly, I uh, uh, find it. Uh, uh, well, a bit strange uh, that uh, uh, some people attach so much importance to meeting a former prime minister. And, uh, but uh, it is so. And uh, when I look back, uh, uh, I got great satisfaction out of meeting Sir Wilfrid Laurier when I was a youth. And I suppose that's just uh, one of the common traits of all of us. Did you ever at any time feel a sense of power and enjoy it? Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so. Uh, uh, it is not really power. Uh, it is the, uh, the satisfaction of uh, uh, getting a number of people to... Uh, work together harmoniously and to, to achieve certain results uh, which they, uh, they have reason to be uh, with which they have reason to be satisfied. Many people said that you were a bit above uh, party politics. Would you say that that is oh, true? No, oh, no. Uh, uh, party politics are the uh, normal way in which uh, the uh, democratic institutions founded upon British uh, traditions have to operate. But uh, people find you more fanatically uh, liberal now than you were then. Is that because the party's in opposition? Well, uh, I think they're mistaken if they find me fanatically uh, uh, partisan at the present time. Uh, I, I don't think I am fanatical about it. Uh, Though uh, there are lots of people who wouldn't agree with my view that uh, uh, we should be able to provide uh, a government that would be uh, more satisfactory than this government has been during the last uh, three or four years. Monsieur Saint Laurent, when a prime minister retires, uh, what does he have in front of him? There's no retirement fund, uh, important retirement fund facilities for a prime minister. Did you feel that you had to start reorganizing your life in this respect when you were defeated? Well, uh, I felt that it was uh, uh, probably my duty to continue to pay income tax, and in order to pay income tax, I had to earn some income. <laughs> so you well, had That wasn't the, uh, the only reason why I went back to work, but <laughs> <laughs> it is one aspect. Saint Laurent then returned to his law practice, helping it improve once again. For the most part, he kept out of the public eye in retirement, except on July 6, 1967, when he was awarded one of the first Order of Canada awards. His citation reads, quote, Former Prime Minister for his service to his country. End quote. Journalist Bruce Hitchison would say, quote, No finer human being ever governed Canada, and none has been so thoroughly misunderstood as Louis Saint Laurent. End quote. Many consider Saint Laurent to be one of the best prime ministers of the 20th century, 
and he was greatly admired for his decisiveness, patriotism, and sharp mind. He also had a strong affection for those who worked around him, which gained him incredible loyalty. On July 25, 1973, Saint Laurent would die of heart failure in Quebec City at the age of 91. The Louis Saint Laurent National Historic Site of Canada, which covers the home of his birth, celebrates his life. The Louis Saint Laurent Heritage House in Quebec City also celebrates his life and time as a leader of Canada. In a ranking of the first 20 Prime Ministers in Canadian history up to Jean Chrétien, Saint Laurent ranked fourth. Jack Pickersgill would say that Saint Laurent was, quote, as fine and intelligent as ever was applied to the problems of government in Canada. He left it a richer, a more generous and more united country than it had been before he became Prime Minister. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Louis Saint Laurent. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurie-Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, Britannica, The Toronto Star, Maclean's, Wikipedia, Collections Canada, Biography, and McDonald Laurier.ca. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.